Welcome to Partisan Gardens. We can't wait any longer. For a tech breakthrough, climate apocalypse, the revolution, or a reform of the USDA loan system. On Partisan Gardens, we know climate catastrophe is here, and it's our food system's dead end. Here we see sustainable fine dining and ecological destruction, hunger and obesity, extreme wealth and immense poverty. We must be frank about reality to reckon with our options. We must choose sides and become partisans of a new way to live and grow food. This alternative path is already under construction. Through the experiments and struggles of food service and agricultural workers, we are figuring out how to create food systems that will nourish a livable world for us all. Partisan Gardens will feature stories from kitchen staff, new small farmers, undocumented slaughterhouse organizers, agroecology researchers, black farming cooperatives, urban gardeners, indigenous land stewards, permaculturists, and countless others exploring this field of experimentation. Let those of us who refuse to wait proceed together. The current food system has failed. And we are on the side of nourishment and care. For this episode of Partisan Gardens, we learn a little about the conditions facing migrant farm workers in California. We share two conversations, one between Partisan Gardens and Nicola Garcia, author of a recent article entitled The Farmworker Caravan, Mutual Aid in California's Migrant Worker Communities. The other is a conversation between Nicola and Darlene Tennis, founder of a grassroots initiative called The Farmworker Caravan. Through her organizing, Darlene has been able to witness and share lesser-known information about the conditions of migrant farm workers in California. Having grown up in California, Nicola also shares some of their family experiences, linking them to some of the issues that Darlene mentions. As people who are not undocumented themselves, they are able to freely speak to such things as the working conditions during wildfires and pandemics and the ongoing implementation of child labor in agriculture. But Darlene is also able to speak to the joyful feelings and camaraderie people experienced as they drove throughout California's migrant communities distributing food. The success of the farmworker caravan is an impressive one, and Darlene walks us through some of the ways that she organized it. Coming from a background as an event planner, she shows the impact that a person can have. Although, as she puts it, feeding 500 families at a single event is just a drop in the bucket. So my name is Nicole Garcia. Uh, I'm a PhD student in cultural anthropology at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, but I'm born and raised in California. I grew up in San Jose, went back in San Jose, San Diego, and Tijuana. And with this project of the Farmworker Caravan, I found out about it through my mother. So she's involved in a lot of the uh, charity work of the Diocese of San Jose. She's involved with a lot of the um, homelessness campaigns regarding you know, safe parking for Homeless people at church parking lots, you may not know how homelessness is a major issue in the Bay Area. And she found out about the Farmworker Caravan through um, this women's association, the Diocese of San Jose. And the Farmworker Caravan has been active since April 2020, a mutual aid project to bring key goods to the farmworkers living in the migrant camps around Salinas and the San Juan Batista Valley. And part of what the connections I made there was that this year, because of supply shortages, they weren't able to buy Christmas stockings for their big Christmas event. 
So Darlene Tennis and the other people who are really behind organizing the Farm Workers Garden put out a call for people to sew their own Christmas stockings to donate to the migrant caravans. And so my mom and her group of friends got together and sewed these stockings and donated them. Also participated in the tamalada, so the tamale cooking party where we made about 2,400 tamales to feed 600 people as part of this big event where it was the volunteers working with the distribution campaign to the farm workers and the farm workers themselves who are living in the camp to have this big Christmas event. And so when I was back in town for Christmas, staying with my family, I had a chance to meet with Darlene Tennis and interview her. And that was what ended up being into the article that we published on this website called Inhabit Territories. So the agricultural economy of California is almost entirely reliant on migrant labor, primarily from Mexico, but also from other parts of Central America and Latin America. This has been a case at least since World War II when you know, everyone was fighting in the war. And so the government made an emergency program to bring in workers from Mexico to the United States and it's called the Bracero program. And eventually it was temporary. So people would come and they'd be reported back to Mexico. And what we're seeing now is the long continuation of this political economy being entirely reliant on migrant labor. But ever since about the 90s with immigration reform brought on by Clinton, even before that with Ronald Reagan, there's increased you know, securitization of the U.S.-Mexican border and the increased policing and surveillance of migrant communities and the increasing deportations and increasing like fiscalization of undocumented communities. So this has made this crux between both already being a very precarious community, being here often without papers, or if they're here, they might not have work visas, and then um, being able to be deported afterwards or facing deportation if they ever are to um, try to organize about their rights or organize about fair pay. And uh, what ends up happening in Central Valley is the work tends to go along where the different harvest harvest seasons are. So people move from one camp to another camp. It would be from, say, grapes to apricots to spinach, etc. So it is huge communities of farm workers going from business to business, typically large land holdings. As Darlene mentioned, you might have a ton of, say, family-run farms, but these families own tons and tons of acres. And we're seeing a lot change right now is the issue regarding climate change, because California went through a five-year-long drought. And now, because of climate change, there's a forest fire season that happens to extend every year to where... The past three years, we've had the three worst fires in California history. So this means that for a greater part of the summer, which is typically the harvest season, the air in many parts of California, including the Salinas Valley, is really toxic debris. And so food production is wrapped up in these broader issues of water scarcity, forest fires, and kind of broad changes in immigration and deportations in the U.S. I'm Darlene Tennis founder of the Farm Worker Caravan. In the beginning, when people were giving out stuff and they were talking about, oh, how come I started? I got into it. They were talking about essential workers. Nobody was talking about farm workers, right? Mm -hmm. They were talking about the first responders and nurses and all that. And I'm like, hello, everybody's sitting their butts at home. What are they doing? Eating. Where did the food come from? (laughs) You know what I mean? So there's like not a single person in America that does not benefit from a farm worker not a single person, okay? So, and I, we appreciate all of the essential workers there are, but everybody, everybody depends on a farm worker. 
Okay. So to me, they were very essential and, and kind. And, and I'm going to give you an example. We were asking for donations for stuff at first and, and some people turned us down because they weren't essential workers at the time. It's changed now mm -hmm. really because we push. And that's why I feel like the, the PR, the media part of it was probably one of the most important things that came out of this because putting it out there constantly in the media, I mean, I would write press releases. I would do get stories out saying farm workers are essential workers. Farm workers are essential. We kept doing that. And then finally Trump even said they were essential workers, but that's, you know, to line his friends pockets, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, but even then they opened the doors even more to workers coming here for farm, not because they want, they want to help them. It's because they were, Foods was literally rotten in the fields because there were not people to pick the foods. Okay. Mm -hmm. So they opened the door. Trump opened the door a little bit for more workers to come in. And when did that happen again? During the pandemic, During the pandemic. in the beginning, the first year. Yeah. People don't realize that though, but that happened. Yeah. Because, um, kind of the question I was going to ask about like supply shortages, there was a sh shortage of like meat in the beginning and um, just whole, everything with labor and supply. And how has that impacted farming in California? And how has that specifically materialized? So, okay, so it, that was how come I, you reminded me of Hunger at Home and Mission Food Hub. So they're uh, getting a lot of FEMA funding, a lot of these people right now. But FEMA funding lasts for two years, apparently. And then they'll have to do something about that because that's coming up. Yeah. Um, but their food costs have soared, okay? Hunger at Home, for instance, their model was based on getting extra foods and extra supplies from, like, the big corporations, eBay and Microsoft and all these big companies around here, Facebook, that have all their big, gigantic employee cafeterias and all that. Well, they're not there anymore, right? They're working at home, and so they don't have that excess food anymore, and that excess food used to go to the food bank. Okay. So hunger and home, for instance, that totally changed for them. Um, they were still getting in all the hotels and all that. You know what I mean? They shut down. Fairmont hotel is completely closed now. Right. So a lot of the, where they were getting their food from that shut down. So it affected them. So it affected their model that they were using. So the essential worker category really, I see as being part of like the early parts of the pandemic. So remember like in April, 2020, when the government said, you know, most people should stay at home, you shelter in place orders. No one has to work unless, you know, you're actually a essential part of fighting the pandemic. So essential worker meant healthcare worker, essential worker meant, you know, trash pickup. And um, we also had a really robust unemployment benefits. So people who say worked at a coffee shop or worked at a restaurant, people whose workplaces were closed, we're able to receive emergency benefits and live off of that in the months that we were in shelter in place, the, the months when everything was meant to be shut down to keep you know, the spread of the COVID pandemic in check. And what we've seen now, especially with um, the response to Omicron, is that it's frequently turned to everyone in the economy is actually essential to where you know, they cut down the days of quarantine to being five days instead of seven. They're doing mass testing, saying everyone's to get vaccinated and go to work. So increasingly, as the COVID pandemic stretches on for longer, this distinction between, you know, essential workers, say healthcare, and non-essential, like a coffee shop worker, is getting flattened because the people who previously weren't considered essential workers are now 
being forced to go to work as well, even though the COVID cases are at astronomical levels. So I think pushing towards that understanding of how the essential worker as a category is increasingly not being leveraged precisely the moment when everyone's being asked to work might be a way to move that category and struggles beyond the COVID governance and the economy. So one of my friends from high school, this other friend that I have and her mom, my sisters and my parents, right? So there was like four cars. And then I put it on my neighborhood thing and I said, if you guys want to donate something, we're going to be in front of the omelet house. We're going to leave our trunks open. And you can drive by and put stuff in because we were in shelter in place. Nobody's supposed to be touching each other, right? So we just left our trunks open and people drove up, put stuff in our trunks. And then we um, then we went on our way and there was like four cars. Okay, So we go over to Watsonville. They're completely disorganized. And they're like down a skinny street and there wasn't hardly anybody going or anything. And I'm an event planner. I was a professional event marketing management. I have an agency and stuff. So that's like what I do is like PR and event planning. Like I could, you know, work this up a little bit. <laughs> so the next day, which was Sunday, I'm like, I put something on Facebook, did an event thing on Facebook. And I'm like, we're going to do a, a drive the next week. Then I texted my friend who used to be the um, in charge of Catholic Charities in Monterey County. She was CEO of Catholic Charity. I texted her. We want to do something in Monterey County. Can you set something up for us? And then I texted an, another friend of mine that works here for the city of San Jose. I need a parking lot. Open up a parking lot for us so we can meet. You know what I mean? Because you have to remember, we were shelter in place. Nobody was even at work, okay? <laughs> so everything was shut down. So luckily, I had these people's phone numbers, right? And so I was texting everybody. Got it together. By Wednesday, we had 90 cars signed up. So within 24 hours, we had like 25 volunteers. By Friday, we were having a donation drop off. And it was like a line of cars just dropping off donations, right? And so that was really good. And again, because I'm a PR person, we had the news out there. <laughs> I mean, that's probably like my plus is that I know how to get PR. Okay, So, um, so that's how it started. And then... And then, you know, I didn't know. I just put that together. And then people wanted to, oh, when's the next one? When's the next one? I'm like, oh, there's going to be a next one. You know. So that's how it started. And then, you know, I didn't know. I just put that together. And then people wanted to, oh, when's the next one? When's the next one? I'm like, oh, there's going to be a next one. You know. So then I started doing it just sort of sporadically uh, throughout the year. And then this past year, I actually did it every first Saturday of the month. And then we would go to a different location. So we would go to San, uh, San Juan Baptista, Salinas, Watsonville, um, Pajaro, um, you know, different locations, Half Moon Bay. So just different locations. And we partner with different agencies. So I started, I learned a lot about the farm worker world in general. Because <laughs> um, So a lot of the agencies, there's a lot of grassroots agencies that work in certain communities and they're very entrenched in those communities and they're trusted by that community because, you know, they're undocumented, so they don't trust everybody. We partnered strongly with Catholic charities because a lot of them trust the Catholic church. They know if they go to a Catholic church rather than a government place, even if it's a government school or a government anything, it's still a government place, you know what I mean? So they trust the Catholic Church that they're not going to turn them in or do whatever. Mm -hmm. So we partner a lot with Catholic Charities as well as some other grassroots organizations.
surprisingly, the caravans didn't face that much repression. In part, you know, this was a time when everyone was on lockdown, but everyone was quite literally supporting essential workers. And everyone was thinking, oh, this is a exceptional moment in the moment we don't know how to respond to. So when my interpretation with their farmworker caravan and other kind of mutual aid initiatives that sprung out nationwide was that people were so impressed that someone had an idea and took off with it that there wasn't that much repression of these types of initiatives. And so with the caravan, it was started with people going to a parking lot, people loading up the back of the trucks with key items and then driving it over the hill. As Darlene said, um, that's a long drive. And it also is, you're going over the freeway when there's no other cars around. I believe with the media being present in part with having this really big articulated message of you know, the farm worker caravan, this is what we're about. They didn't necessarily have any police coming to like question what they're doing. Also keep in mind with a map of the Bay Area, they're driving from San Jose to Salinas, which involves basically taking the same freeway you take to go to the beach. And so this kind of assuages any sort of accusations that they're just, you know, going to the beach or something like that during pandemic. And in terms of like what it looks like, this farm worker caravan is um, almost a mix of, you know, a protest and kind of a get together gathering in cars. So people have messages painted on their car windows, painted on their car. People are honking their horns and have signs they're holding out. Uh, one of the coolest things I saw was how involved different lowrider organizations and crews were. So lowrider associations were driving their, you know, antique, modified, beautifully painted vehicles in the caravan. So you see, you know, driving through the Santa Cruz mountains, just this line of old 1960s and 50s muscle cars. And so people really made it an event on top of being a kind of practice of you know, mutual support or, you know, aid for the farm workers. I think we had everything, everybody under the sun involved in the donation drives from every age group, every faith base, every, every ethnicity. It was really beautiful to see everybody come together. It's very touching. You know, we've gone through such turbulent times. I mean, I, I mean, this is going to go down in history as we know um, this era that we are currently in with all of the the Trump era, the BLM, the Me Too, the pandemic. I mean, there's so much going on. People were so stressed out, so like tense, anxious, you know, just distressed and, and sad and, and worried and everything, right? And when they came together for the farm worker caravans, it was like this moment of peace for them. It was like, the, I'm going to cry. It was like all these people coming together to help each other, to help humanity and they were coming together in prayer. We were coming together singing a song. We were coming together to do good, to help another human being. And people were so touched by it. It was just so moving to people that came. So when they came on the caravans, it was they would always say it was an experience. It was such an experience, you know, because it was a human experience. Mm -hmm. And so that's really, I think, what got people so involved and so um, attached to the whole movement, as people say it is now. It was predominantly um, families the first year that were coming out. Mm -hmm. And then, and there were more young people, I would say, the first year. There were more, because I think they were more 
willing to come out during shelter in place. So they were more like, yeah, we're fine, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Although my parents, who are 89 and 91, um, they've been on every single caravan except for one caravan. They've gone to every single caravan, even when we were in shelter in place. We also have partnered with Hunger at Home and Mission Food Hub. And the reason why those two particular agencies have partnered with us is because they don't care who gets the food. They don't have to have a child in school. Uh, you know, be part of the food lunch program is how they get names of people that need food or that they're getting welfare or whatever. So certain people are contacted through a lot of the food drives. Well, these are undocumented people who, again, are not relying on government stuff, okay, and are not going to government things or are not going to sign their name to anything, okay? So Mission Food Hub and Hunger at Home, they give food to whoever needs food. Okay, so there's a big difference there, and that's why they have been able to partner with us, which is really great. They will also go outside of their area. So we are bringing food outside of their county or their area. A lot of times these agencies, these food bank type agencies, they give food to people in their community because that's what they are being funded to do. Okay, so the funding, like for us, I depend pretty much solely on individual things because a lot of the funding we wouldn't even qualify for Mm -hmm. because we can't, we're not going to track the people. Again, we don't have those lunch food programs to do. We're feeding people outside of our community. We're not staying in Santa Clara County. We're not staying in the Bay Area. So a lot of the community foundation money or funders want you to serve your community. And we're not serving our community. We're serving outside of our community. And realizing that a lot of people who don't know anything about how farming in California works would be kind of taken aback by how, wait, why are you doing the distribution of food to people who work in farms? So it's so funny because one day we were talking about that because we, there was a big boxes of, um, I don't remember what it was that got donated to us. It was Brussels sprouts or it was something from Salinas. It might've been lettuce or something. But, but it, it came all the way to Mission Food Hub, and then they donated it back, and then we sent it back over there. And then we're like going, well, the irony of this, right, that they picked it, got on trucks, went to this other place, and then they sent it back. I mean, talk about the f- f- footprint issue, too. But besides that, just the irony of it, that you have this cycle, you know, it's crazy. And we're in California, so it's not even that bad compared Mm -hmm. to other places. One of the most evocative things in your interview is when she explains the food donation they received from the Michigan Food Bank. That was Brussels sprouts that were grown in Salinas. Can you talk about what you learned about supply chain disruptions and how they dealt with the donations of food in general? There were two stories that Darlene said that really stuck out to me. The first is how this box of Brussels sprouts from Salinas got shipped all the way over to the food bank and then came back to Salinas to be donated to ostensibly the same people that picked it. But then also how in the beginning of the pandemic, no one had masks. There was no toilet paper in grocery stores, no hand sanitizer. And because of this, I'll say, you know, diffuse network of people who were just down to support initiative, supporting the farm workers they were able to pull connections that were broader than local to get resources in. 
So the example of um, these two women who said, oh, they got cousins who work at this factory in Tijuana. You can, you know, have that connection to actually get things like toilet paper, hand sanitizer to be donated. And what this says is um, less in terms of, say, scale, where, oh, yes, we're going to be, you know, donating all these boxes. We're going to move all this stuff. But it's more also, you know, what are the things that are actually necessary and what are the ways in which we get them and how this isn't just, oh, yes, this local community is getting the all support they need by helping each other, but also, oh, how do we actually have these connections between different places that are on uh, more equitable terms? Because interesting to me is like with supply chain disruptions, you're getting disruptions, you know, across the Pacific, a bunch of disruptions in terms of like freights and shipping and big box trucks. But at the same time, you're able to have this caravan, which is able to distribute a ton across, you know, from one area to the other, just because people are down to help out and then get things in because of that same kind of kind of well-wishingness. The statistics interesting. Now, it'd be interesting to see acreage wise, though, but but the majority of farms, a large majority of farms in California are family owned. Okay, now. How big those families are, how corporate those families are, and how much acreage is another thing to be told, right? But there's a lot of corporations that are owned by somebody, okay? Um, And they own the majority of stuff. They also, there's a lot of political stuff. When when, When we were trying to, okay, in the beginning, the other stuff was they were not giving supplies to the farm workers, like masks and sanitizer and and doing and, and keeping social distancing and all that, they were not doing that at all at their workplaces. There was a very, very high rate of COVID uh, for the farm workers, still is, um, because they they bust them in. They live in you know bunk housing, and they you know they don't they weren't supplying them with any kind of protective gear or anything, right? How does the kind of economy of like migrant labor there work nowadays? And the second question is. How did these different undocumented organizations that you're partner with form those connections and how did you form the connections with those organizations? Okay, so the farm working thing for I'm going to talk about politics for mm-hmm. a, a quick second. And like just the mass and all that, we had to get like this is where Robert Revis comes in mm. and then he's trying to push legislation. So certain legislation got pushed on a state level. He's now, which has happened during the pandemic, is now the head of the, the Agricultural Commission the state agriculture for California. And of course, California feeds the world, okay? So California produces 50% fruits, nuts, and vegetables in the U.S. And 90% of things are like almonds and, and lettuce and things like that, which is why Salinas Valley is called the salad bowl of the world because all the lettuce really comes from Salinas Valley. So they produce a ton of stuff and there was legislation needs to happen, had to happen. And then when these people were getting sick and they were having to quarantine for 14 days or longer sometimes, you know, they don't get paid, right? So that's the reason why they didn't want to get tested in the beginning. They also didn't want to do anything because they don't want, they don't want to know that they have COVID because they don't get paid. They don't get paid. They don't get money. They don't get money. Their kids are going to starve, right? Mm-hmm. So they'd rather just work through it no matter how sick they are or whatever. So it's a catch-22, like if you're trying to help them. During the wildfires, um, you know, they were making them work during the wildfires with the smoke. 
The smoke was such bad air crawled. People didn't even want to run to their mailbox, okay? Mm -hmm. And they were out there working 12 hours a day in the smoke, in heavy smoke, which is against the law to do. But who's, that's if they complain. Who's going to complain, right? Because the majority of them are, again, undocumented. So I did file some OSHA complaints, and boy, was it a pain in the butt. For me, I had a difficult time filing a complaint. They were trying to poo-poo me, and I can't imagine if it was, you know, somebody who was not the native language for them or was not as forceful as I was, you know, there's no way that they would file a complaint. Mm -hmm. So when I saw the smoke and they're working in the smoke, I was like, this is not just against the law. It's like a sin. I told everybody, like... Go out there, take photos, take video, whatever. Note what farm it is. You know what I mean? Do all that. Could you talk a little bit about the dilemma that some of these farm workers were faced with, sort of the catalyst for the farm worker caravan? Yeah, so major point is that a lot of these NGOs, in essence, are extensions of local governments. So local governments will give an organization a grant and they will do a service, but the um, kind of conditions of the grant is they must comply with certain parameters, such as stay in the Bay Area, work with certain targeted populations. And migrant farm workers, because they're predominantly undocumented and aren't on these registries, they're also outside of these rubrics of what is considered a target population for NGOs, um, fell out of this when COVID pandemic happened because people classified essential workers, And on one hand, farm workers weren't considered essential because they weren't the people on the front line of the pandemic, so to speak. So not people who are literally dealing with healthcare, people dealing with the pandemic directly. But they are essential to our lives because they produce the food. But then also because undocumented workers don't often receive benefits because everything was so geared to the pandemic, there was no consideration to how people's immigration status impacts how they receive benefits. Something as simple as everyone in the U.S. got the stimulus package, but not if you were undocumented and you don't have a social security number. So this created a whole situation where so many people have connections to farm workers in California, particularly the legacy of the UFW, Cesar Chavez. And as Darlene mentioned, so many people are, say, the children of farm workers or second generation And so when there was a call to support the farm workers, it was a really large response from just ordinary people and organizations that didn't have to kind of comply with the rubrics set for them by local governments and funding agencies. How I got connected with people is, well, first the Catholic Charities thing, and then they'll know some of the agencies. And then then I contacted Shirley Trevino, who's with LULAC, and so I've been friends with her for years. And she's always been very, very involved with the whole farm work. She used to work for the UFW a long time ago. And then just learning about, I don't know how, just little by little people would say, oh, do you know this person? You need to know this person. Do you know this person? You know? And so little by little I would meet. And then I actually did like a meeting with Assemblymember Rivas Mm -hmm. and then all these people because they had never met each other either. Like these different people from different agencies, they didn't know about each other. There's been no like coalition type of things. I've been kind of like the person that brings them together, which is kind of interesting (laughs) Mm -hmm. that you would think that they do know each other, but they don't. And then I got connected with the whole group in Los Angeles and they're a little bit more connected down there because somebody here, her sister-in-law's down there. And then I started connecting with them down there. 
So yeah, there's more of a connection now to different groups. Remember, you weren't allowed to have gatherings at that time because mm-hmm. it was shelter in place. But I, I'm an event planner, so I have contacts with everybody, like I said, in the San Jose and all these people. And they kind of just turned their eye like I didn't have to get permits or anything like that because it was considered a humanitarian effort. So we were just saying it's a humanitarian effort. And people forget this too. We weren't allowed to be five miles outside of our home. Do you remember that in the very beginning? You weren't allowed to travel five miles outside of your home when we were initially in shelter in place, or you got a thousand dollar fine. And they were fining people for going to the beach at that time. And we were going to go like over to Watsonville in that area, which I knew people were going to go to the beach. So that's originally how I did placards saying we're part of the farm worker caravan and everybody put those on their cars. And we originally did that so that they would know. I even contact CHP. This is when nobody was on the freeway, remember? And they're like going to go, where are all these cars going? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So we, I even contact CHP and told them, you know, we're having a caravan because it's going to be 90 cars. Okay. Right. I said, we have a caravan of cars coming. And I was like the first one out of the gate that was going to do an event with hundreds of people, right? Because it was 90 cars and in each of those cars are at least two to four people per car. So I'm doing an event with hundreds of people during beginning a shelter in place. <laughs> There's no rules, like no guidelines written up. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, I got to just like think of how am I going to do this? You don't even know how many notes I wrote up for everybody coming on and how many they had to sign a waiver. I had them sign a waiver. Like if you get COVID, don't blame me type of thing, but more eloquently put. Mm-hmm. And then, <laughs> and um, that when they drove into the parking lot, they needed to park one space apart Oh, and they had to have their masks on. They had to wear gloves. We we stopped doing the glove things after like the first year, but they had to wear gloves. They had to put all their donations in the back of their SUV or the trunk, not to put any donations in their passenger areas. Because then when they drove up, the volunteers would take it off, but they would never go inside the passenger area. Because we were being like super like cautious right when people were you know sanitizing streets with like hazmat suits yeah people didn't even want to go to the grocery store remember mm-hmm. so this is like in the beginning and when we did the first one this is when the store shelves were empty remember there was mm-hmm. no toilet paper there was no meat there was no nothing on the shelves and we literally cleared off our own pantry shelves and threw them in the trunk like we didn't even go to the grocery store and then, you know, it was really difficult in the beginning. Like we were trying to get the masks and san- hand sanitizer. Remember, no, there was no hand sanitizer yeah. to be found. So different different groups, different people, like they just bought stuff, particularly the masks at that time. That was a big thing. We were pushing the masks and the hand sanitizer. So it was really difficult to find at that time. You found you needed a demand for later on that you didn't have initially or things that became less of a demand over like... Wow, the year and a half it's been um, A year later, because I had them go through, the agencies go through the list, and they added in um, Ziploc bags and, and disposable containers <laughs> oh, yeah. so that they could take out, like they could take leftovers or food out to eat, lunch. So they they put that in. It's always the diapers and the, you know, toilet paper, real basic stuff. We didn't bring clothes or anything. It was real basic stuff. Like dishwasher soap, clothing soap. So some, you know, some people, they don't have refrigeration and things like that. So it's a good thing to get like tuna and and spam and things like that. You know, stuff that they could keep for a while mm-hmm. and stock up on. And they would have at least something to eat. Because some of them don't have, like we went out to 
Gilroy, and then we followed one of the mayodormos who who's a like a supervisor of mm-hmm. farm workers. And then he took us out to a couple houses and it was all these guys from Chiapas, right? So they come out of the house and then we're getting they're all happy to get all this food. And then he was asking the guy, because they don't have anything to cook on. They have houses, but the houses don't have appliances in there, right? No refrigerator or stove or anything. So he was asking the guy, can we get like a barbecue or something so that maybe we could barbecue stuff, you know? So people, and now it's like when we made tamales. So we just made 2,400 tamales two weeks ago. We made 2,400 tamales, right? And making them is not the problem. No, you make them, you freeze them, you can give them out. But we had to cook them because we just, we kept asking him, do we need to cook them or not? You know, and I asked him because I remembered the guys in Gilroy. They don't have any place to cook it, right? And so they said, now we got to cook them. And they were like, oh, my God. So cooking 2,400 tamales, making them is is not as hard as cooking them, okay? That's a lot of tamales to cook. So literally, we cooked half of them that day. We made 2,400 tamales and cooked a little bit more than half that day. And then the other rest, we had to split up between everybody, and they took them home and cooked them and then brought them back. So much of you know, farm workers' lives I believe really kind of gives them a really good understanding of everything from, you know, U.S. immigration or how the kind of like logics of kind of regulation of life is made through forms of social assistance that people who, you know, don't have to worry about someone giving them a box of food, maybe rat them out to ICE, wouldn't even think about. And so I think a lot of things about this kind of knowledge production by both the farm workers knowing how to navigate these systems of security and these systems of labor and people working with them and encountering, oh, you have a very different understanding of everything from social assistance to labor can really help people understand the world we live in and also the economy we live in and the role that government assistance and government agencies and even like NGO partnerships play in that. That is to say, it really calls into question really kind of technocratic solutions of, oh, we'll just, you know, give money and give money to everyone else on the problem. Because as you can see in this situation, there's always these caveats of, you know, who qualifies, who doesn't qualify. And caveats that aren't even a part of, say, like a program's actual design, but by virtue of not being in it are part of the design. Something as simple as, you know, one group that has these kind of good intentions of supporting the community, really their idea of community is confined to, say, like their city. So it strikes me so much about the kind of coalition of groups working with the Farm Workers Caravan that um, Darlene's helped put together, is that so many of these groups aren't political. So, for example, she talked a lot about El Alcalde de la, de la Misión. I'm blanking on his name right now, but man who does the big carnival in the mission district in San Francisco. And he formed this one, you know, food bank organization and they're a group that's able to really fill in these gaps in, you know, aid and support that no government agency or NGO can do or is really willing to do. And what is interesting in that situation is that this isn't necessarily, you know, the democratic party or explicit mutual aid organizations that are stepping up in this way, but it's a lot of you know, little groups that because they aren't necessarily beholden to the idea that, oh yes, it's the government's job to do this. Therefore we're going to 
make things better by pressuring the government. They're doing that, but they're also yeah, getting these basic needs met. And so the knowledge production there is that people working in these spaces of support realize really quick you know, the limits of making demands because you can make demands about categorizing farm workers as essential workers, but all the while they're still not getting the support that's needed. Likewise, you know, you can actually get some sort of new infrastructure to help farm workers, but unless you have their knowledge of who's safe and who's not safe to talk to and get assistance from, you're not going to be able to actually effectively reach out to them. Because as Darlene really eloquently mentioned, there's a lot of really good grassroots organizations with a lot of strong ties to farm worker communities. And that trust doesn't happen overnight. And that trust also isn't guaranteed. It's contingent on those groups still having ongoing connections. So the knowledge of you can't just kind of parachute in and expect to have trust. And you can't just expect to take on and have this big capacity unless you reach out to other groups that have the same kind of logics and understandings of you know, helping groups no matter what, even if they fall outside the purview of your organization or your interests or your politics. On one hand, circling this knowledge via having more people in these kinds of spaces where you go to participate in something like the farm worker caravan without necessarily a preconceived idea of this is what my purpose is here. And more just actually taking a step and like learning about all these different people who you're kind of making connections with and what the knowledge they have is and how it all fits together. I think it'd be a interesting like kind of first step towards both circling this knowledge and then also find kind of lines of flight to escape the stranglehold of the capitalist food system. My family has been involved with farm worker movement for like ever. Like my cousin actually designed the UFW logo. And um, he did like the El Macriado newspaper and the Cuelga posters. So he was an artist for the movement for like 16 years. And he worked along Cesar Chavez and all that. And then my other family members, they were with Cesar Chavez in the CSO, which is a community service organization where he originally got his, you know, originally learned organizing and all that. So I've been around that like pretty much all my life, but I have never really been, I've never been involved with like the UFW or anything like that, more social justice stuff in general. Um, I wonder too, because people from California, like my mom, she remembers about the, you know, the great boycott in like the seventies, but the people who work in the fields quite often because they're undocumented are first generation. Do they, is that legacy at all impacting how people relate to it? So many of the volunteers is because their parents were farm workers or they were farm workers themselves. Mm. So they have gotten involved and they've just expressed that, you know, the thing is the reason why the farm workers, cause we are right next door and not all farm workers are from Mexico, but the majority are, but we're right next door to Mexico. That is going to be a, always a constant flow of migrant work for us. Okay. And you don't really see generations that are farm workers. Cause when you're a farm worker, you want your kid to never be a farm worker. So you're usually the, the next generation or definitely the generation after that are not farm workers. So you always have to get that fresh flow of people that are coming over the border that are undocumented that are farm workers. And in order to keep things affordable, they have to be undocumented, which is why a lot of the people that so-called are against, okay, (laughs) immigrations or immigrants and all this stuff are really for it because they're making money off of it. 
And if we really wanted to shut the borders, we could, but we really don't want to shut the borders. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because people are making money off of it. And with this kind of cycle of constantly being fed by the next generation of undocumented workers, how do these different, like, I guess, organizations kind of endure then just because people, I guess answer the question because people's parents were farm workers, therefore they're still have an attachment to it. How do those groups keep kind of going despite people no longer being farmers after one generation? Well, normally, like their parents are farm workers and when they were a child, they did some farm working. As children, they worked in the fields and their parents either put them in the field for one, to learn a lesson or for two, because you don't ever want to do this the rest of your life like I did, okay? Or for two, uh, they had to have their children work in order to survive, okay? So that is the one industry in the U.S. that is not affected by child labor laws. Um, so children can work in the fields. And so even though we have child labor laws, it does not, it does not pertain to agriculture, okay? Mm-hmm. People don't know that. So presumably, they're supposed to be 12 and up, it depends on the state too. I think some states will allow you at 10 years old or whatever. But again, nobody has an ID when they're 10 or 12. So they can be eight or six years old and they're saying, oh no, they're 10. They're just small, you know, because they're Indios. They're small because they don't got paperwork, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a community. And, and then you sit there and you think, of, well, does that really happen? And yet you hear everybody's story. Well, I remember when I was a kid and I was a thing. It's like, well, yeah, it happens because do you hear people talking about it? <laughs> They're saying when I was a kid and I was picking stuff, you know, so they were, yeah, they were kids when they were doing it and they're still doing it. They're still child labor. So agriculture law in the U.S. is very particular because it's based off of kind of a lot of ideas about how agricultural life and labor work um, that don't really make sense or aren't really, aren't really applied to the rest of the country, the rest of the industries. So something as basic as, you know, in the U.S., why do we have such a large summer vacation? Oh, that's because back in the day, that was the time where kids could be at home helping their parents work in the farms, where they, you know, shouldn't, can't be in school because they have to help their family work yeah, in the fields. And this extends into how the child labor laws work today, where in my interpretation, it's almost assumed that if kids are working in farm working, it's because they're working with their parents or they're working on a family farm. It's not based on the assumption that you have thousands of people living in migrant camps working in these fields for pennies on the dollar. And one of the really intense things that Darlene and I talked about was how so many people's parents bring them into the fields, not just because we need extra money because we have mouths to feed, but also almost teaching them a lesson to show them that this is what you know I'm doing so that you can have a better life, but just so you know that this is literally, you know, destroying my body and you do not want to live this life I'm living. You want to find another job and make it. And so you never have to be a migrant farm worker and your kids never have to be a migrant farm worker ever again. So something that's pretty intense is a lot of parents will lie to the minor the kind of agricultural foreman about the age of their kids. So saying, oh yeah, they're 12 and they're really 11. And one thing that's really intense about like, you know, my mom's story, because my grandparents were working in the fields as well, because San Jose used to be all orchards. And so, you know, you have little towns like San Jose was a little town before tech, but everything around that was orchards with people working there. And my mom was at least 14. My grandmother lied to the foreman and said, oh yeah, no, she's, she's 15. So my mom worked in the summers at the apricot cannery. 
And for her, it was good because she'd be able to save up money for UC Berkeley. But for my grandmother, it was a way to show her, you know, how backbreaking work in the agricultural economy is. And every day, the mayor double asked, oh, you know, where's your daughter's birth certificate? And my grandma just was like, oh, I forgot it. I lost it. I'll find it. I'll bring it tomorrow. And she basically worked a whole summer with my grandmother saying, I'm going to bring the birth certificate tomorrow. Don't worry. She's legally allowed to work. She's over, you know, the age of child labor. And so there's a dynamic of the child labor laws in our culture are specifically very much more lenient towards child labor. But then also there's a consistent turning a blind eye to the actual like violations of child labor laws in agriculture. So I think one of the kind of main parts of this model that could be applied elsewhere is a model of how do you bridge these divides between you know, rurality and urban centers between you know, undocumented communities and citizens, because these are you know, two very vast kind of differences, both in terms of how people live, how people understand themselves and understand other people, that the farm worker caravan provides a model of how to overcome those. Because very few people in the US, unless they're you know, directly related to a farm working community, knows a farmer. Try to imagine people in New York who say, you know, we'll buy land somewhere and uh, move to get out of the city. But it's not the same to live in a rural space than it is to be a farm worker or to actually like know what farm working is like. Because as Darlene mentioned, especially the situation regarding child labor, it's really hard work and it's not sustainable for one person to do, or let alone like a family to do for their lifetime. And so applying the caravan model to opportunities could really help in terms of like urban autonomy and how to reach out to rural communities and also how to understand, oh yeah, what do rural communities need that urban people can provide? When I'm thinking about the farm worker caravan, I'm really thinking about, you know, what is a model? It's a model of bridging the divide between, you know, U.S. citizens and documented communities, rural farm workers and urban city living people who might have never seen, you know, a cow in their entire life. And those are two vast, you know, divides in terms of how people live and also how people understand, you know, politics and political action. And I think about the other movements this could be applied to are really the movements around, let's say, food sovereignty in the city, or also movements around, you know, climate change and ecological destruction. So one of the big examples I know, especially like living in the South, is situation regarding hurricanes, flooding, and other issues regarding the environment. Because the last hurricane that happened in Louisiana didn't even hit, you know, New Orleans, but it devastated the surrounding rural communities. And in a moment like that, having some sort of model of, okay, people in these rural communities need support, how do we support them? I think uh, something like the farm worker caravan could be a model of that, in that it's based off of support, it's based off of finding different groups to partner with. My groups, I mean, literally sending texts and just putting things together at the drop of a hat without necessarily being concerned about, you know, what's the role of like different political parties or what's the role of um, different NGOs or waiting for necessarily FEMA to come in and support everyone. But then also it is how do we actually build effective relationships with rural communities and how people in rural communities build effective relationships with people who do work in like issues of like urban food sovereignty actually kind of bridge those gaps. 
it's been really a beautiful experience for everybody coming together. I think that's a big thing. Well, there's two things. One thing is, again, the publicity and media has really, really helped because we were able to put it out there about the farm workers in the smoke or the farm workers, you know what I mean, not receiving face masks and things like that, which a lot of that, I think, helped because we were the legislation went through where they had to provide them with protective gear mm -hmm. and then also pandemic pay because they were not getting pandemic pay. And when they were uh, being forced to quarantine, you know, they didn't get paid. So they were getting pay, which that was very unusual for an undocumented person to get pandemic pay. So there was different things that were happening this year and a lot of things happen which you would never have dreamed of happening because people realize how essential farm workers are, mm -hmm. okay? And, like, people like to ignore them. And, like, they, so many people just don't even treat them like they're human beings. You know what I mean? They just see them out there. But they don't even think of them as human beings. So one of the things, too, that when people went on the caravans and we would drive past them and it was 100 degrees out and they're wearing long sleeves and long pants and a hat on their head and their face masks and their gloves and they're in 100 degree weather working as if they're in, you know, 30 degrees, right? And they're out there working like every single day and people are like, God, I didn't realize that I would hear that all the time. I never knew. I didn't realize people that had lived in California their entire lives just always drive past the fields, but they never look. And so I think the awareness was a big, big thing. And then getting it out there in the media so that people were more aware of everything. So I mentioned mm -hmm. earlier, like kind bars, I had approached kind bars because they had a campaign where they were giving free kind bars to all the essential workers and they turned me down. They said, oh, well, we don't mean that. We mean like healthcare workers. So they emailed me back. And I'm sitting there thinking like, have you read the packaging on your thing? Kind bars. It's like we are proud that we use the freshest fruits and nuts and you know what I mean? In our product. It's like, and that you're saying that they're not essential. They're essential to you. <laughs> you know what I mean? And they're like turning it down. <laughs> Their own packaging they're saying how important it is that they use these nuts and these fruits in their kind bars. And then they're saying, no, but we don't mean them. They're not essential workers. They seem pretty essential to you. <laughs> I think one of the most interesting things about mobilizing this idea of essential worker with farm workers is that in this scenario, it could have been extremely possible to mobilize the idea of undocumented workers or undocumented communities. And that wasn't the case because the point wasn't that this is a normal community that is deserving of help but isn't getting it. It's this is a essential part of our world and essential part of you know our lives that we need to consider that relationship with and then support from that point of an actual interconnection. Not necessarily a commonality, but interconnection. I think it's particularly interesting in a place like California where during the Trump administration, there was so much divisions between um, California and the Trump administration over um, the issue of you know, sanctuary cities and deportations and combating all the issues of you know, increased like immigration control and increased threat of deportation at the level of politics and policing. But 
we're seeing here how that is kind of the extent of it. And with this case, it's kind of filling in the gaps by really mobilizing not the fact that, oh, this is a population that is extra vulnerable to state intervention, but actually, oh, this is a you know, population that's part of our community and that we are working with and helping by virtue of the fact that, you know, we live together and we actually are interconnected, despite the fact that there are all these huge divides between rural and urban, between document and document, that present a different story. Back to when we were doing the smoke, trying to get pictures of people working in the smoke and all that. They're not allowed necessarily to bring their phones with them or to take pictures on a thing. There's probably a reason behind that, right? So they have to sneak their phones in and like take photos and all that. They're not supposed to be taking photos in the fields and things like that. But it depends on, you know, some farms will, you know, there's some people that will do documentaries and stuff. But we were trying to find footage of the farm workers, like where they're living. And I was like, God, there's got to be, because I heard they're, you know, like a lot of them are homeless, basically, or not living well. And we're like, where are they now? Where are they living? Because there was a story that came out probably 15, 20 years where they were living in caves. So finally, I had a couple reporter people that said they would go out there even if they went off on their day off to go document or whatever, because there's no film out there mm -hmm. of this, which is interesting, right? <laughs> so right when we were going to go out was that, and that's when all the wildfires happened. So we weren't able to go out and do it, but always work in that angle because you got to keep that story out there of people, the awareness. Almost kind of like a bridge between the newspaper and the media and these lives of different undocumented people who they wouldn't have access to otherwise. Yeah, because wow. you know what? The caravans are like a drop in the bucket. We bring, you know, food to people. It's a drop in the bucket. I mean, we might, we'll feed like, you know, five to 700 families or something when we do a, a thing, which is a drop in the bucket because we have, depending on the season, the year, we have 400 to 800,000 farm workers in the state of California. So us feeding 500, it's dropping a bucket. You know what I mean? But the awareness, though, is probably the most important thing that the farm worker caravan does, the awareness of what's going on with all these people. Thank you to Darlene and Nicola. You can find their interview in Inhabit Territories. We'll share a link to that article on our website. This has been Partisan Gardens. On this program, we are going to look at the world through the lens of food. We will speak directly to those with their hands in the dirt. But also to those in all sectors of the food world. To the servers and those being served. To the history of food in this country and beyond. We will focus on understanding the systemic problems in our food industry, including food scarcity and racism. We want to talk to you, too. Please write us at partisangardens at wfhb.org and we will be in touch.